Watch podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch podcast, we're going to be discussing the topic of cow milk production versus calf size. This comes from a presentation that was made at the Beef Improvement Federation Symposium and Conference held in June of 2020. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by the presenter, Dr. Travis Molnix, who's a range beef cow production system specialist based at the West Central Research and Extension Center. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Mullenix. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. Dr. Mullenix, I really found the presentation that you made last year to be very informative. I also think it's an accurate representation of some of the challenges we see occurring right now in Nebraska for cow-calf producers. And I would say not only in Nebraska, but across the United States. Share with us some of the things that you presented at the conference in terms of cow milk production, what's occurred with that over the last 30, 40 years, and also what's happened with calf weaning weights, and then some of the challenges that presents to us as we think about cow-calf production. Yeah, we're definitely in an interesting time point. We're, we're still really focused on the output of how can I increase calf weaning weight, and really not looking at either the input costs to get there or the long-term impacts that our genetic selection may be occurring that may not be a positive for cow-calf production. Um, and so a lot of the presentation was set up from some previous data of mine when I was on faculty at University of Tennessee, uh, where we uh, milked quite a few uh, uh, Angus cows in a, a couple year study, uh, and, and some data we have here from uh, Gibbonson's Sandhills Laboratory as well, and kind of set, used those two data points as as kind of this high quality environment of Tennessee, this high input environment of Tennessee, it is some of our data here from a more semi-arid environment, a low input, and, and kind of went through that process of, of what um, that level of milk production that was actually doing to improving or, or the change in calf weaning weight. And found some really interesting things when you compare the two sites, one being that in Tennessee, you, you get this really this quadratic response to milk. Is at a lower input or lower milk production, you do see an increase in calf weaning weight, but you get to a point when increasing milk actually started decreasing calf weaning weight. Um, and so, in that environment, even though it's a high quality environment, we got to about 24 pounds of milk, and that was the max of increasing um, calf weaning weight. Anything above 24, we actually saw it stabilize or, or slightly decline. And we had quite a few cows there in the 30 to nearly 40 pounds of milk at peak lactation. And you think about 40 pounds of milk, you know, that she's producing every day. That's a lot of nutrients and that's a lot of inputs that support, you know, that level of milk. And, and at, that, at that level of milk, we're, we're not seeing an increase in caffeine weight. So we're, we're paying for it but we're not getting the output for it. From our data here in Nebraska, it was, was different in, in terms of, we really didn't have that high end milk production, but we saw a continual increase in, in uh, calf weaning weight with increasing selection of milk. So, you know, two things goes on with this is, earlier on in calf's life, let's say up to peak lactation, it's about 60 days of age, you see that, you know, about 85% of the nutrients that cow's going to get is actually from milk production. And over time, that declines. 
And so those grazing bouts or, or, or the nutrient coming from grazing is plays a bigger role in calf gain as we get away from peak lactation. So about that 60 day mark. Um, and so environments that uh, are lower quality or have lower quality for longer times, man, milk plays a bigger role in that calf weaning weight process, laying actually more of the nutrients in higher quality environments. You, you don't see that because what they're grazing could be as high quality or, or higher qualities than a lot of these uh, milk production parameters. And so that's why you see this interaction in some of these environments of high quality, low quality uh, across. Um, another note that we found in that Tennessee data was above 24 pounds, we actually started seeing a decrease in reproductive performance. And so these cows, not only were weaning less or, or smaller weaning a calf, they're actually more coming open. And so, so you combine outputs of a pregnancy and weaning weight, you know, selecting over that in a higher quality environment, we're actually decreasing production efficiency. And we're not getting what we think we're getting by selecting for more and more milk. Um, and, and so we're going really away from any efficiency in the cow-cat segment by selecting for more and more milk above that 24 pounds. And we can use that mark in, in, in a lot of environments, you know, in a lower quality environment, um, you know, I tell a lot of producers, I don't want to be over that 20 to 22 pounds of peak lactation. I mean, that's, that's kind of the max that, that I want to be at. But one interesting note is that if you look at where we are today with, with a lot of our beef cows and due to selection, we're milking more at higher quality milk than dairy cows or Holstein cows were in the 1970s. So in the 1970s, there was a lot of interest of crossbreeding Holsteins with beef cows for, for increasing milk production, increasing calf weaning weight. Um, and so from that data, you know, we actually have higher milking cows today in our beef breeds. And a lot of these range or just cow-cow production systems than, than Holsteins did in the 1970s. Um, and that's really just due to genetic selection. We've got this mentality is, you know, more, more is better. And, uh, you know, we're trying to increase that calf output, that calf weaning weight through a maternal trait that's costing us a lot more. And we may not be getting that calf weaning weight out of it. Dr. Mullenix, I think the commercial data supports this. And again, I want to be careful because everyone's individual operation is different, but Dr. David Lamb from Oklahoma State's done a nice job putting together some producer data. This is actual commercial cow-calf operations where they're reporting their weaning weights, some from the Southern Plains, some from Kansas, uh, some from North Dakota, and also from Minnesota. In every case, basically showing no change in average weaning weights of calves over the last 30 years. I think that really challenges me as I think about what we've seen in terms of genetic trends basically in all breeds over the last 30 years. It's been for more milk production, a greater mature weight, but we're not seeing that realized in weaning weights. Now, I know some people will say, well, we're, we're weaning calves earlier than we were 30, 40 years ago. And that may be true in some cases, but uh, the trends over several data sets just don't show any change in weaning weight. Yeah, that's a great point, Darren. And, uh, you know, there, there's only so much nutrients in our environments. And so we can select for more and more genetic growth or genetic potential for growth, but 
if the nutrients are not there, those calves are not going to grow anymore. And so our environments really limit that response. Um, and once those calves leave those environments and go to, you know, a higher quality environment, you know, you see that growth being increased. But we're really limited by our environments. Um, and, and that data is somewhat challenged by the, the, the thought process of, of weaning date and age of those calves. And, and there's more data out there that, that supports that in terms of adjusted 205 day weights. And, and it says the same thing as at a 205 day weight, we're, we're not increasing calf weaning weight across the United States. You know, individual producers may be, or, or a producer that has um, changed over to using terminal sires, and, and that's a different model. Um, and, and so th those, what you know, using a terminal sire, you can't increase weaning weights, or, or you know, certain producers could by changing some of their genetic selection, but you know, across the United States, we've kind of stabilized calf weaning weight, and that's just strictly due to how much nutrients we have in our environment, and that's just going to limit production at, at that level. Dr. Malenix, I think something else that I would observe is happening across much of the state is people are shifting their calving date. Uh, I would say more and more people moving from a February, March, or late March, April time period to May, June. A number of things driving that, trying to reduce harvested feed, and also just the labor that goes with calving cows, the challenge with getting labor today. As we've shifted when those cows calve, of course, then we're shifting when those cows breed. If you're March 1st calving, you're going to be putting your bulls out May 20th. And in Nebraska, I would say the golden window of forage quality is probably from mid-May to late June across much of the state. In terms of if you look at pasture and range resources and the quality of nutrients there, that really fits well a March 1st calving cow because she's going on to the best plane of nutrition from a range or pasture resource of the whole year, which really can support uh, you know, good reproduction. However, when we shift calving date, and now let's say we're looking at a May 1st calving and we're putting bulls out July 20th, we've changed forage quality and that's having an impact, I think, on cow reproduction. Give your perspective on some of the things you've seen in that area and, and what are some things producers can do to manage through that if they've shifted calving date and now they're disappointed in what they're seeing with reproduction. Yeah, it's a definitely a challenge because you think about the cows that I've managed in this spring calving system for so long. And if I'm moving to a summer calving situation, the cows that fit the March are not necessarily going to be the cows that fit the May. And it really gets back to timing of, of that peak forage quality. And, and you know, for a lot of our environments, you know, and, First of July, we're really at this major decline in forage quality, uh, where we peak in, in May, June, and, and it starts going downhill from that. And so, you know, turning out bulls in late July, first of August, for a lot of guys is we've got cows losing body weight because our forage will not meet their requirements at that time point. Um, and, and so, the type of cow that I had in March may not fit um, that May herd or that summer calving herd now. And so, no product production plays a big role in that is I've got to have a cow that, that milks less in that May system than I did in that March system. Also, I need to shift the delivery of nutrients, right? And so we went from a system that you may be supplying more nutrients during late gestation due to that timing of when we have a lot of cold grass, a lot of snow weather, lower quality forages, 
and having a, a high nutrient uh, demand due to that increase in fetal growth and late gestation to shifting that where where they're they're calving in a higher, a little higher quality plane of nutrition than they were uh, previously in that March system that we're waiting a couple of months before we have some quality grass. Two, we really need to focus on shifting those, supplying those nutrients that fit that system in that May. We think about protein is on a decline, energy is on a decline. And so look at, you know, supplementation strategy that fits both the protein and energy needs of those cows during that late gestation. And the troublesome area is, is in those younger females. You know, they're, they're still trying to grow. They're lactating for the first or second time. And, and that demand is even harder on them in, in those summer situations, those summer breeding situations, uh, versus what it was in a March calving herd. And so, you know, really have to focus on, on make sure we're delivering the right nutrients to those cows in those scenarios. And for Nebraska, you know, distillers works great in that scenario of one, it's a pretty good protein source that's high in rumen undegradable protein, which is deficient during those time frame, and it has high amount of energy. And so in the system of, of moving from March to May, I really need to think about that supplementation strategy going into that breeding season to make sure the cows are in good plant nutrition and, and they're not coming in over conditioned and start losing body weight rapidly through that breeding season and have issues with the cyclicity and, and timing of getting bred or even having increase in embryonic loss because of that increase in weight loss. Uh, going through that breeding season. And so your supplementation strategy has to change as I move from March to, to May calving. And also the type of cow that I have also needs to change and be adapted. So my genetic selection needs to focus a little bit more on increased moderation on milk and lower milk production as I move from March to May. Dr. Molinix, as you think about the work you're doing there at the Gibbonson Sandhills Lab with the cow herd that's there, and several years ago, the, the cow herd or a portion of the cows there was shifted to a May calving system. What are some of the things that you're currently doing now to adjust that system to match nutrient demand with nutrient availability, especially on young cows? What are some strategies you're taking to try to work with that? And I should say that this is not a high milk production herd compared to many? Yes, a lot of focus we're, we're looking at is type of protein sources uh, and making sure we supply a protein source that's high in rim and undergradable protein that meets that deficiency in metabolizable protein. Whereas if I came in that scenario and fed a high rumen degradable supplement, I'm not gonna meet those cows needs, even though I'm meeting the protein in general need, uh, I may not be needing the cows need by supplying a protein type that doesn't fit the deficiency. And so looking at protein, you know, type of protein and the type of protein with and without energy and, and feeding some feed additives that have a energetic or increased ener energy efficiency response during that time as well as, you know, you think about it in some of these summer herds is that it's hard sometimes to supplement these cows due to where they're located on the ranch because they're out on pasture, they're usually the farthest away from headquarters at that time point is, 
can, can we come up with delivery mechanisms or, or type of solicitation strategies that decrease the delivery cost and increase in that response of supplying that uh, rumen undergradable protein source or that energy source and to get our, you know, that, that reproductive response increased. Dr. Malonix, you mentioned particularly here the young cows, the yearling heifers, the two-year-olds, the three-year-olds. It seems in many cases, at least for the herd at the Gibbonson Sandhills Lab, once they get to age four, they're able to go on and kind of manage through that. As you think about your strategy, is it different for these young cows versus middle-aged or mature cows? Yeah, it is because, you know, to get to that four or five years of age, they've been through the process, right? And so the ones that couldn't make it in that scenario in that environment fell out early. And so you generally, in most environments, you see you know, stabilization of cows within the herd once they get to that mature state, and, and some will start dropping off as they get to older. You usually see at that four or five, more stabilization. You don't have that big drop off like you do at as a two and three-year-old. In, in some environments, that two-year-old is the, is the hardest cow to keep on the place due to her preg rates. In some environments I've been in, that three-year-old was, was, had the lowest preg rates. Um, and so it really depends on the management type, whether or not it's two or three-year-olds. But th those cows are, are the hardest ones to have, you know, high preg rates. So getting them bred early enough is a lot of the issue is, you know, a cow that cycles late, a young cow that cycles late, gets bred late in, say, a 60-day breeding season, she's going to calf late the following year. And so, and she has less opportunity, less chance uh, to get bred the following year. And that's where we typically see a lot of young females drop out of her. And even if they got bred as a two-year-old or a heifer, that they got bred so late that they had lot less opportunity to recover from calving and start cycling up early enough to get bred the following year. Um, and so, you know, a lot of things that we try to focus on in our supplementation strategies is, how can I get these young females to start cycling as early as possible after calving? That gives them a lot more opportunity to get pregnant and hopefully pregnant early that the following year they have more time as well. Dr. Molix, any other thoughts or strategies as people think about what they can do to manage the scenario they're in right now if perhaps they've moved from a March to a May calving system and and are finding that they're challenged with what's happening with the reproduction in their cow herd. Yeah, so one thing I would, you know, you and Alice put out quite a few podcasts on, on you know, moving from March to May and, and thinking through that process of, you know, what's the upsides, what's the downsides of doing this? Uh, you know, if you know a producer has made that change, you know, get with that producer. And so they've got a lot of insights of what worked well, what didn't work well, and, and what's their challenges of making that. And so before making that move from March to May is understanding the system's effect of making that move. Because there's a lot of downstream impacts that making that move will have. And, and, and have a game plan around those challenge areas like we talked about with the young females, the twos, the threes, and start thinking about your, your bulls and bull selection and what I'm keeping for replacement heifers within that and making sure those animals are well equipped to, um, to make it in that environment, make it into that change in environment as we're moving to a different uh, calving season. 
Dr. Malonix, I really appreciate your time. Again, I thought the presentation you made was very timely and uh, really appropriate for the scenario we find ourselves in. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, listening to the uh, presentation. Well, for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I'd encourage you to visit the Beef Improvement Federation Conference website. That can be found at bifconference.com. At the website, you can find the archive presentation from the June 2020 BIF conference. Again, the title of that presentation, Cow Milk Production versus Calf Size.